This is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. To support journalism in the beer space, check out Patreon slash allaboutbeer. I'm Tanya Cornett of Ten Barrel Brewing, and this week I am so happy to be talking with my good friend Ben Edmonds from Breakside Brewery. We'll get into that in just a moment, but first this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Ben Edmonds is one of my very best brewing friends. We became fast friends as soon as we met. His Breakside team has basically adopted me. <laughs> I love his beers and respect his opinion. He is one of my favorite people in the world. Ben, welcome to Brewer to Brewer podcast. Thanks, Tanya. You're making me you're making me blush right now. <laughs> so we're going to I love start you things too. off. Aw. Hmm. Um, to start things off, let's get just a little bit of your history. Yeah. Um, how did you get into brewing and at what point did brewing change the trajectory of your life? Uh so I started, like many, as kind of an enthusiast and then eventual home brewer, an eventual pro brewer after that. Um, the timeline of that, I would say, is that I got into beer, like into craft beer, micro brews, whatever they were called at the time, in, in college. Um, I remember drinking, this is, you know, like 1999, 2000, drinking Dogfish Head and Mad Magic Hat and Long Trail, Sam Adams, of course, when I was on the East Coast, and um, just really being amazed by the flavor. I, I remember drinking my first Boston Lager and thinking about how bitter it was. I could, I was like, I could barely drink it. Um, and you know, within a year, then of course, it's like for my birthday, we have a keg of Octo uh, Sam Adams Oktoberfest at uh, at the house. So I, I kind of got into it pretty quickly at the enthusiast side. And after college, I ended up moving to Colorado. And that was really where uh, I kind of got the bug into craft beer again, more just in terms of interest and just like the wide range of flavors that you could find in beers, um, you know, from kind of these, you know, everything, even you know, something like that today we think of maybe as pedestrian as like fat tire was just so mind blowingly flavorful in 2002. And um I had done a little bit of home brewing in college, but it was when I moved to Colorado that I had a friend whose husband, who became a good friend of mine, uh, who was a home brewer on the East Coast, they had moved to Colorado. And I really started thinking about like, what goes into making a beer? Like, how do you make a good beer? What is this all? Uh, I never really thought about the process of brewing and got into home brewing really kind of uh, deeply went down that rabbit hole, started entering some like homebrew competitions, got, you know, all my beers knocked out of the first round of the national homebrew competition. The first time we ever entered um, was kind of crestfallen. It was like, I thought we were making good beer, trying to learn how to make better beer. And eventually decided that I wanted, 
you know, I, I was passionate enough about it. I found a creative outlet in brewing in terms of recipe development and kind of concept development that I wanted to try and make a career out of it. Fast forward like three or four years later, and I'm living in Portland, hoping to get into the beer industry. And I have a plan with two friends to sort of open our little, you know, nano brewery, coffee shop, restaurant, brew pub situation. And they were pretty serious about it. We all wanted to kind of get into this together. We'd all made, you know, we're all kind of in our mid twenties at this point and wanted to make that commitment. And I was like, great, well, I'm going to try and enroll. I didn't, you know, I couldn't find a job. It's like, you know, you couldn't find a job in brewing in 2006, 2007, if you, uh, you know, they were just hard to come by. And I think that's a really big difference between the current scene today and 15 years ago is, you know, I'm all constantly searching for new brewers now, people who are enthusiastic about getting into it. But like in 2006, you couldn't find a job in brewing unless you lucked out or had some sort of connection. Um, and so anyways, long story short, I went to Siebel thinking that was the way that was going to help me get a job in brewing. And while I was there, the two guys that I was planning to open this brewery with decided they didn't want to work together. And uh, so I kind of had to fend it for myself. I decided that I want to make my career out of that. Um, I had that moment when I was at Siebel, probably in the first week, you know, where I saw like this kind of career open before me and said, yes, these are the people like like-minded people who I want to be in the same kind of profession as and I had that vision for what I wanted my career to be and um, got back to Portland eventually got my first brewing job over at Upright Brewing and yeah that was my foot in the door into the professional brewing industry and you know 15 years later here we are and so from there you were just hooked I was nothing hooked. I mean, could I was, change that I was hooked before then and then you know by the time I met the guys who were opening Breakside, which is a couple, you know, a year or so after that, or uh, yeah, but a year after that, uh, it was, it was just a very, it was a really fortuitous opportunity to open this little brew pub. And I was like, great. Yeah. Do a three barrel system in the basement of like a little corner pub, be like kind of a, give, have carte blanche to do whatever I want. That sounded awesome. Um, didn't really ever think about it, like growing into a, a larger brewery or regional brewery. Um, and, you know, I guess I've just kind of held on for the ride <laughs> since we it opened 12 been, years ago. It has been quite a ride for you. Um, it's no secret that I love to brew. It's going to be a sad day when physically I can no longer do it. Yeah. I feel ownership when my hands have touched the beer throughout the process. As you have become busier with Breakside, your time in the brew house has no undoubtedly decreased. How has it been to step away, but still feel connection with the beer? I really admire, like one thing I like love so much about you, Tanya, and like admiring other brewers who are veterans is the commitment to like having your hands on the beer, um, every beer. And you've said that before. If you feel, if you don't make, if you don't touch that beer, you feel like it's not yours in some way. And Steve Luke is a good example of this over at Cloudburst, you know, uh, another good friend. I mean, he he built that brewery because he wants to make the beer, physically make the beer. I, for me, like, I guess I love making beer if I can be in the brew house, which happens very rarely. I like love doing that. Like, I still love it. But I've never been the kind of person or brewer who feels like I need to have that touch. So I'm okay being like the kind of the conductor of the orchestra as it were, you know, like, and if I, that means going without brewing for months on end, 
you know, so be it. I'd rather not, I'd rather not brew and not then have to, so that I don't have to answer a hundred emails at the end of the day after I've brewed. But like, I, I think that there's like, for me, the passion of brewing, the creative outlets, the intellectual side of it, the things that really um, drive me in brewing can be a little bit divorced from the day-to-day operations side. And I think that's actually made, been an asset to make me a better manager of a larger brewery. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, I definitely see that. And it's probably where I will eventually head. But right now I still have beers that I need to create. And so yeah. I have to get them out of my system first. I don't know when that end point will be, but at some point I have to make that decision. Um, Breakside has always had a very diverse beer lineup. When you go to the pubs, it the different beers is just amazing. Uh, how do you juggle what the brewers want to, to brew, what you need to brew, and then what the market wants? Well, we've been really lucky. I think Ten Barrels this way too. I mean, like we have the outlets, right? We have the ability. You know, we, I've always said we have three, six, 10, 20, uh, 30, 60, and 120 barrel fermenters, right? So sometimes like we have the ability to make any beer and it's not so much about figuring out what the market wants, it's about figuring out how much they want of it. And so exactly. like if, you know, we've had beers over the years that, you know, maybe in the salad days of Saison, of we could make 30 barrels of a fennel pollen Saison and send that out the door and have it go into the trade and people would buy those kegs or buy those 22s. And in 2022, that's not a reality anymore. So that sort of recipe goes, gets brought back to the pub level, right? It goes back down to uh, a 10 barrel or six barrel, something with a three barrel batch. And I don't really rue that because like, I'm fine with, I get to see all the breweries in action. If I'm one of our production brewers, perhaps I would feel like, oh man, we used to do such interesting, fun things like this fennel pollen saison or this espalette smoked amber ale. And now we have to just do IPA all the time, but that's, you know, the larger ecosystem, the diversity is still there. And so it's just about kind of plugging things in and never losing a passion for like making those smaller oddball styles and figuring out how you can get them in front of people. Um, but when you get stale beer in front of people, that's never a bad thing. Like you don't want to try and if, if Espelette Amber Ale is already a difficult sell, like having seven month old Espelette Amber Ale is not helping anyone, not helping a cause, you know? Exactly. And I think that really is why people are attracted to our pubs is for the variety. And we allow that it's a luxury that the brewers are allowed that they don't have to make every production beer and they can make something to fill out their tap list that is something for everyone. Yeah. I mean, what do you, at your, at, at, in terms of your pubs, and I know Tenbrill structures, they're kind of larger beer program differently, Tanya, but like, how do you, I mean, you do a ton of experimentation, you know, like the Chicha Murata is a beer I think about, like, you know, how do you determine when and where to plug a beer like that in? Well, <laughs> I feel like we have so many beers in queue. It's just whatever is next. Um, and basically our pubs are innovation outlets, but, and they can order beer from my team, um, but they don't have to brew anything that's from production. And they have the ability, if they need more beer, they can order from us. And so really they're just filling out their own tap list. 
Um, wow. In Portland, usually that's all Portland beer besides the production beer. Um, right. It depends on the brewery and it depends on the size of the, um, the brewing kit as to whether or not they can keep up with how much beer mm -hmm. they're going through. And, and it depends on the season. When, when it hits summer sure. in Portland, um, that brewery is like a black hole. Yeah. We can throw so much beer at it. It just disappears. Um, never yeah. ending. Exactly. Well, that's something that we should at least loop back to later on. I mean, I, I feel like in an era where um, people want to get, you know, there's so much premium put on putting your beer into package to get it in front of people for hype purposes, for media purposes. There's something to be said for the busy pub. You know, if you can, as a brand, whether it be, you know, and obviously Ten Barrel has resources, Breakside has resources, but even the local brew pub has resources to invest into themselves, like to create a busy pub, you can move through so much beer, especially when you're hand selling those beers, those quirky beers over the bar to customers. Oh, exactly. People ask, people ask us all, like maybe less now during COVID or post COVID, we're going to call this moment, but like also be like, often be like, how do you guys figure out how to sell these beers? Like these, a petite saison, you know, green peppercorn or like an English mild that like supposedly no one wants. And I think a lot of it is like, you just have to have a front of house staff and bartenders who are able to get those beers in front of people in a really efficient way. And, and then those beers do start to move themselves. Well, and I also think that the general population, they can get our IPAs anywhere. They can go to the grocery store. That's not why they're coming to our pubs. They're coming to see what else Tim Barrel has to offer. So if we can offer interesting beers um, that rotate through, relatively quickly by the time you know one of the other pubs orders part of it salespeople take a little bit then all of a sudden what's left for the pub might only be a few barrels so it goes really quickly and we're also able to when we are really concentrating on a beer and trying to make it better um you know the more batches you can make the better you can make it that's the hardest thing i think for a lot of people right is that they can't look if you have one outlet only the trickiest thing is to get a lot of reps on that brand in order for you to be able to make it really well, you know, and yeah. we, we still, I mean, I don't know how small breweries make like, you know, consistently world-class beer. It very, it impresses me. I, I, it blows my mind when I see, you know, we watched like Comrade the other day win a uh, golden IPA at the Great American Beer Festival this year for the second time in what, four years. And I just know like we couldn't do that. Like we make great IPA, I think. And like, I can't like, the level of consistency, the level of refinement that you have to maintain and achieve, I often think is a privilege of larger breweries, but for small breweries to be able to do it is so, so, so impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I truly decided I was going to be a brewer, it was like I put on a second skin. It became who I am. I think like many artistic careers, brewing is more than a job. You have amassed a team of people who share this mentality. There's no clocking out. How do you foster passion and excellence in your employees? Because your employees have it in spades. Uh, that's very kind. Thank you. For, it's a good team. I, you know, I, I came from a background in education and I was a high school teacher for uh, five years before I got into professional brewing. And I think that I, I've joked about this in the past, right? Is that like, you know, you know how to maintain or address people's kind of emotional uh, needs and fragilities when you're a high school teacher, if you're a good high school teacher. And I, I honestly just think that I translate that to 
our kind of HR side and hiring side and training. Um, and then once you have the good, right people on the bus, this, you know, once you get a few good eggs on the team, it just uh, spirals from there. You know, I think more than anything else, when I see places that struggle with leadership, with promoting a positive culture, promoting passion, I mean, let, let's, you know, I guess probably worth saying that like the first thing is like, you can't have a toxic culture, right? Like passion, buy-in, all these other things are so much higher than that. But like, oftentimes the problems either starts with the top or starts with one or two bad eggs in the middle, you know, and it doesn't take a lot of toxicity to turn an entire culture on its head. I mean, we've had struggles ourselves over the years with difficult employees who on, in many ways were wonderful people, but were not great teammates, you know? And when you're trying to run a brewery with 30 people, especially as I get personally more distanced from the day-to-day -day interactions with our production staff, they're going to be influenced by the people who are side by side, shoulder to shoulder with them more than they're going to be influenced by kind of the people who are in charge. And so you have to have top to bottom, just people who are really have a lot of integrity and who are committed and, you know, having a low tolerance for toxicity is maybe the way that we've gotten there a little bit. And I think then that helps feed itself. You get people who understand that like, this is a good company. One thing that Greg Soto, who's, uh, you know, Greg, obviously, uh, but who's our director of, production and quality said a long time ago he's like you know we make good beer but let's focus on being let's make let's make our company as good as the beer we make you know oh i love that yeah and you know i think production brewing is really hard i could not be a production brewer in my heart i know i could not make the same thing over and over and over and over that is just not me so it's always a challenge i think for those brewers and if they have the same kind of heart like I do, um, it's always a challenge for them to have that kind of passion. I, so I have, a, I have a thought on that, but I also want to ask you a question about that. Because like thinking back like 12 years ago when you were at BBC, when you left BBC to go to 10 Barrel, was there any level of kind of like, um, were you excited about not having to make like pub standards anymore? Honestly, that's why I left because yeah. I was at the point that brewery was so difficult for me to work in. Physically. Um, it was, physically, it was so manual and I was constantly had a bump on my head. I had, my back was killing me. Um, and the way the company was structured, I knew it was going to be really hard for that to ever change. Yeah. Um, and my passion really is doing new recipes. And that is where I feel like I shine. So making the same thing over and over and over to me was just the break I needed before I, while I was preparing to make something new. Gotcha. Whereas now there is no break. It's just constantly something new, which in, in itself is another challenge. Yeah, I don't think you've ever, like, I've never asked you that before. Like, we've never talked about, like, why, like, what leaving BBC, like, what the appeal, I mean, I can understand some of the appeal from kind of, like, secondary things of going to Tenbrill back then, but, yeah, the idea of, like, oh, like, maybe part of it was just the, the creative outlet was going to be so much greater. The platform was going to be so much more freeing. Really, that was the only reason. <laughs> it was. Because I loved Ben Brewing Company. I yeah. loved the people. I'm still really good friends with the people that I worked with. They're some of my best friends. 
and um, biggest supporters, but really just the just knowing that I was going to lead the innovation. Um, and for a long time, it was just me, an innovation team of one. Um, but I knew that a team would eventually be put together. Um, it took about four years, but it did finally happen. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the difference there, right, is that like, I love pub brewing and still get to have a big kind of like, you know, part of that in my life with our two brew pubs and overseeing, um, you know, and working closely with Natalie and Dylan to get there, get kind of develop the pub portfolio. But I love the challenge and the thrill of like chasing a perfect core brand, you know, like to me trying to maintain Breakside IPA, maintain Wanderlust, like how do you take a beer that's like you developed in 2010 or 11 that like in so many ways, like it was a, it's a beer of that time, right? It was meant to be a beer of that time. It was a reflection of the time, but like 10 years later, it could easily be old school and outmoded and like just kind of out of date. And how do you not let it ossify and become a fossil? Like, how do you, um, I guess fossilize, you know, if not ossify, like how do you let it not become a relic? Yeah. And so I guess that's a question back to you. I just, how do I, you I, do that? Well, A is you just have to, that's where the fun of production brewing is for me. I guess that's my point, right? Is like, that's where the, the, the challenge of it compare, like, is like, and it's frustrating because you don't always get there. You're doing it in big batches. It's moving so fast out the door. But like being able to get buy-in from brewers who maybe came from pubs and who want that creative outlet to be like, hey, like, we're not just following a rote recipe for Wanderlust IPA any longer. You know, like we... It, it's always moving. It's always getting tweaked. You know, it's always a it's a shifting target, and that's to part of that target is not just the brand or the quality. It's to keep it relevant. And I love exactly. that challenge of it. You know, and I think you and I have had many conversations about that, um, especially brewers that started kind of when I did. Um, there are so many out there that um, they kind of stopped doing anything once they got their winning recipes or like they just thought that core brands were set in stone. And I feel like you constantly have to evolve those. I can't stop messing, fiddling with any recipe. So of course that's what I like to do. Um, but I think it's really important. I think if you're not evolving, you're just spinning your wheels and dying as a brand. And, and, and you're the, you're the, you know, bar like the the high water standard, a high water mark of of that pursuit. Because I think a lot of people say they get an award, they get a good recipe. You know, then you say they get an award winning recipe, and like you know, un until Tanya Cornette has the like the gold medal winning recipe multiple times over, it's uh, it's, it's you're never not set satisfied. In stone. You're never set in the stone. And then when you get there, you're like, okay, I'm over it. I'm done. It's like uh, it's <laughs> exactly. like um, on to the next. <laughs> Chris Cooper in in um, adaptation. Do you ever see that movie? The from early aughts. Yeah, it's like it's it very much like that. He's like he's so passionate and so driven to something, and then he gets to where he wants to be. He's like one day I just walk away. You know? Exactly. And I think brewing might be that for me. When I retire, I'm just gonna walk away. Just mic drop out. I can I I will miss you very much when that happens, but I can respect that. Uh, I do think that there's also this idea, this misconception 
that somehow production brewing can't have that. Like, I think it's the assumption that people in smaller breweries have that flexibility, the ability to change hops, change recipes. Um, whereas, you know, oh, if you're a production brewer, you can't do that, you know? So, but that's just simply untrue. I mean, if there's anything that we've learned, it's, it's this a myth of the kind of like loyal customer, the customer who's so loyal that if you change money cat from one back to the next, they're going to notice, you know, I, I think that's just, I don't know where that really originates. Um, but I'm not certainly not an advocate for not being consistent. But I think when consistency becomes such a hindrance, that it's like a straw man argument about why you shouldn't adapt or change, then it's really not doing anyone a good service, you know, it really, and, and production brewers should heed that too. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a spirit of pub brewing or, or mid-sized brewing that we try and bring to our core brands at Breakside that has helped us over the years. Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Ben Edmonds of Breakside Brewing. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Ben, welcome back to our conversation. I began entering competitions around 2004. It's the only way I felt I could get a level playing field. If you can't taste a beer was brewed by a woman, then maybe it wasn't. Winning catapulted my career in ways I couldn't have imagined. There's nothing like the feeling of your first medal. What was your first medal? Uh, my first medal was uh, at GABF in 2011. We won a silver for our Irish stout. That um, was your first ever. So not even like at NABA? We hadn't, we, we, that was the first competition we ever entered. Um, <laughs> was GABF 2011, yeah. Um, I mean, I, when I lived in Colorado, I had been to GABF in, I guess, probably four years or so, 2005, six, seven, eight, something like that. And... Um, was an AHA member, so I'd gone to the Saturday session and seen the award ceremony, seen how enthusiastic the brewers were. I mean, I remember, and then in, at Siebel, I remember uh, Keith Lemke talking on the first weekend or second week of, of classes about uh, how the Chicago brewers had done at GABF. And so when we uh, had the opportunity to enter at breaks, I was like, well, yeah, let's send some beers. Um, and that was like the first time I've literally ever, ever hand-bottled beer. It was crazy. Um, so when was that back when all the brewers used to just kind of gather in the corner? The, yeah, that was, I think that was the last year they did that was 2011. So I get a little taste of that as a, you know, um, civilian going to the ceremony. And then uh, as the first year that we entered as a brewery. And that was pretty rad. Um, Sean Kelso, your coworker, was right standing right next to us because he won like two or three medals that year. Um, and though he was still at Barley Browns at the time. And we were so excited 
that he was like, hey guys, like you need to go on stage. Like you're just standing here like shouting and screaming, you know? And so, yeah, we, uh, that was the first time. Yes, and he actually introduced me to you. Yeah, about a, probably a year and a half later. Yeah. Um, so what was your first World Beer Cup medal? It was at the same beer. It was Irish Stout, the next at 2012, uh, 2012 uh, World Beer Cup. So like six or eight months later, it landed again. And Tanya, I was such a fucking snot at the time. I like rolled, people were congratulating me. I was like, oh, the same beer won. You know, I was like, I wanted to be known for something other than Irish Stout. Like it was, I, I, I would go back and like slap myself if I <laughs> said that shit, if I, if I could. Um, what do you say to brewers who say metals don't translate into beer sales? It's a hard thing. You know, it's, comp, we've talked about this, like competition's not for everybody. And it's true. Like, it's not like we win one medal for Irish Stout or Smoke Porter and all of a sudden those numbers like go through the roof. You know, it's, it, it's a slow burn. I think that like the way to me, the, it, it is very rare when any given medal for anyone can make it kind of really move the needle as far as sales on that brand go. And in some ways at one point we were exceptional to that. I think then that, that we did have a medal that ended up kind of really making our, uh, our future. But I think it's more about brand burnishing. It's about staying relevant and being part of the conversation, you know? And like, I think our customers, even though they're not beer judges, respond to deliciousness. And when you can put beers in front of a really discriminating group of people and you're consistently having those beers end up advance, win, et cetera, I think that is ultimately going to have some trickle down effect to your perception amongst consumers too. And so oh. I, I, you know, I don't think it's about like any single brand, but I think it's about all the brands, the whole brand. I absolutely agree. What has winning meant to you personally and to your team above and beyond the trickle down? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the ability to, you know, none of us, there's very few like millionaires in craft brewing, right? And so <laughs> I think that like, it's rare in any profession to have the opportunity to be kind of identified objectively amongst your peers, amongst your, uh, yeah, yeah, your peer community as being at the top of your profession. Um, in a way that's not just simply like a popularity type contest or a lifetime achievement award or, you know, a retirement party or something like that. And, you know, we strive at Breakfast in our core values to be in like the absolute top tier upper echelon of breweries quality wise worldwide. And so those validations are something that are pretty rare, but allow you to see that like, oh, yeah, we're on the right path here. Yeah, exactly. For me, um, it definitely was validation. It was validation that I needed at that time and I wasn't getting by any other means because I felt so invisible and overlooked. And it was a huge confidence booster. I I'm sure, can you imagine what, like, if, if, like, for you in your position, like, hadn't, you would have been making the same excellent beer, right? Right. But that, catapulted you to a position to a platform that you absolutely 
I can't imagine wouldn't have would have had otherwise, right? No, I I don't see how I would have. I really don't. Um, and so, yeah, it really has been an amazing journey for me personally, and it's something that I really love doing. And I think there there are a few of us out there that do kind of have that bug where it's helped our careers when we needed helping. I think a lot of it too, I and mean, we go back to this question of team for like what it means to, to me and to Breakside is, you know, I, I love, and I don't, I take very seriously like the reputation of our brand. And when it confers upon a lot of our staff who otherwise don't have like the ability to walk into a room and have a conversation with people or feel, you know, it, it, when someone says, oh, I work for this brewery, if others recognize it immediately, it confers upon you a certain level of credibility that is powerful. It's privilege, it right? Um, and it, it creates access points for you, whether professionally or personally, that can boost your career or just, you know, uh, allow you to, to, to schmooze a little bit better. Um, and I think those are important for, for all of our staff, not just for me personally yes. or for our leadership. It's for everyone on the team, you know? And I think that's one thing when I look back at my time at Tim Barrel versus Ben Brewing Company, I think with Ben Brewing Company, because it was just me, I had more of that. Now that it's Tim Barrel, I'm under an umbrella. And so there's many people, I wouldn't say I get lost in that, but I'm definitely not the first person people think of, I don't think, when they think really? of Really? Who do you, so I, I personally, I disagree with that. I don't know that I, I think that you're absolutely the first person they think of. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe that's just because I love you and know you so well. Maybe. Um, entering competitions, like you said, isn't for everyone, but there are a few of us out there that really enjoy the game. And I truly believe at this point kind of is a game for us. We brew, refine, rebrew, taste every winning beer we can get our hands on and seek con constructive criticism from our trusted peers. There's a lot of preparation that goes into being a consistent winner. Um, I was once at um, one of the talks at CBC and one of the guys said, you have to prepare to be a winner. And that was the first time that it really clicked with me there is really a lot of preparation, consistent preparation to make sure that you have your best foot forward when you send these beers. What is your process for deciding what beers to enter? Do you enter smaller, smaller uh, categories, um, smaller competitions? And what tips and tricks can, do you have for making sure the integrity of your beer is intact once it reaches the table? Well, I could, I, okay. how, long do you want to, how, how long do you want to talk about all that? I can start, well, I'll say, let's start with one thing, which is that in my mind, the, you know, the way competition is structured in the U.S., right? And this isn't the same in, in Australia. They do it differently elsewhere. It's, it's different, right? But to answer the question about like the mentality, the competitive mentality about it. And again, to me, this is always, always reflected in how I think about our positioning in the marketplace. Like, I never just think about competition as a thing for its own sake. It's always about what you, what that means for how your beer looks to a consumer as well. But is that in the US, like when you run a competition, the top three beers are the only things that metal, right? Mm -hmm. 
435, 425 IPAs, right? But only three get recognition. There's going to be 25, 45, 100 excellent beers in that field, right? And so when I think about it, I'm like, man, I have to go up against Tanya Cornett. I have to go up against Sean Kelso. I have to go up against the Sun River crew, the Freem crew. And this is just, I'm naming Oregon people right now only, right? Like, you know, add in California, add in Colorado, add in, uh, I guess the East Coast makes okay beer, but they don't really tend to participate in these sorts of things because, you know, that's another podcast. Uh, but like the number of people you have to uh, kind of go up against, you're really being asked to be like, can I stand up against the absolute best people in my profession? And I, that, again, it's, it's a thrilling challenge. For some people, they would say, oh, I don't really care about that. But for me, that's like a huge mountain to climb and a, a challenge to face, you know? Um, but if you think you can just casually walk in and like walk away with a medal, I don't think that that's, you shouldn't be doing it that way, right? Well, yeah. it might happen once or twice. Yep, yep. But to be a consistent winner, there's just so much that goes into it. Um, yeah. And who you're like, think about the people who you admire the most in your profession, who you like, can you, can you outdo them? Can you match them? Um, so that's like the first place we start. And then from like, kind of in terms of like uh, entering smaller competitions, yeah, that's important, right? It's like, you wouldn't go and like run a marathon without having trained. To me, like entering these regional competitions is like spring training. You wanna see how the beers you're making hold up against small groups in certain categories, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, it always amazes me. It's like, I think there's one or two breweries who I know who like really don't enter any competitions other than GABF or World Beer Cup, but they and seem to do well. But I think for the most part, the people who you see succeed in these kind of smaller regional ones then do emerge, uh, kind of manage to make their way through at the larger national kind of more, uh, more prominent competitions too. And I think that's a good, good breeding ground, a good training ground. Absolutely. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and we enter a lot of the same small competitions. Uh, I'll talk about my favorite one later. But <laughs> competitions can be very costly. It's not only the entry fee, which seems to be going up. It's the time spent on fitting the beers into the schedule. It's the day you spend labeling. It's the special packaging, not to mention the increasing shipping costs. At a time when the bottom line is more important than ever, what advice can you give brewers to convince reluctant owners to submit beers to competition? It's a great question. I mean, I, the, you have to view it as part of a larger quality program. You know, it, it's about identifying whether or not your beer is as good or meeting the kind of criteria like meeting the standards of the industry, are you? I suppose that if you were a brewery who was entirely marketing based and said, you know, we have such a good brand, such a good kind of like uh, yeah, our branding, our marketing is so good that I don't need anything. Our hype is so good that we don't need any outside validation 
then I suppose I'd say, I don't know that it is worth spending the time, the labor, the shipping and the entry fees to do something like that. Um, unless you were driven to just prove yourself to be able to hang amongst the best. That said, like if you do care about quality and if you care about differentiation, then I think we've already talked about what are the, what's the reason for doing that. And I think if aliens took over the earth, like, and looked at, and they, you know, they would say, okay, all you craft breweries are basically making the same thing. So we're just going to subsume you all into the best one of you. And you are now all Allagash brewing, you know, like we're all Allagash brewers now. And when our alien overlords come, I just want there to be a little bit of a contest, right? Between that, because I think that like for, that most breweries aren't doing the same, are doing the same thing. And we're trying to differentiate ourselves on really infinitesimally small things, which is a lot of it is quality. And it's how that beer tastes in front of that consumer at the end of the day, whether that consumer be a average, you know, Joe or Jane or a judge. Exactly. I love that answer. Um, we have all gotten judge notes that seemingly say opposite things. These are notes, after all, relative to the person who was writing them. We all have different palettes. What advice can you give for interpreting these sometimes cryptic notes? I think that like one important thing that's for me always been really important. I learned this from judging, you know, which I got into after first entering competitions. And that gives you a very different perspective, really important perspective on what is going on at the table. But to me, the idea of like, regardless of what those notes say and whether you agree with any individual judge or multiple judges, those three judges, those five, six, seven judges, whoever's at the table made the determination that there were three more pleasant beers at that table instead of yours, you know? And I, I just always try and take that, you know, I'll take any individual piece of feedback with a grain of salt, but I always take very seriously. It's like, you know, the beers that we wanted, the beers they chose were beers that pleased more people. Exactly. And so like, you know, when you're, I think when you to get hung up on one judge is always a little bit short-sighted when you exactly. forget what the complete dynamic of the table is. Yeah, I try to find a, if there is a cohesive theme between them. And then also when I am judging as a judge, I try to leave a clue without being like, this is this would make this beer better because I'm not gonna say that. Um, but I will try to compare them to other beers on the table yep. and help them get an idea of where they landed if they're yeah. more more acidic than others or the darkest color or whatever the case may be i at least try to compare them because i feel like that's been those notes have been the most valuable to me when i've gotten them yeah i mean and you know if if you're looking at your notes and they're coming back with um consistently kind of you're saying you know issues across whether it be technical issues, it's easy to kind of be like, well, I don't really believe that, or I don't, I, I don't taste that oxidation, or I didn't taste that, you know, DMS. Like, you know, when you got to kind of like kill your darlings and be a little bit like kind of self-critical and willing to sacrifice whatever kind of belief you have about your beer sometimes in order to say like, okay, maybe these, maybe the things they're tasting are things that are actually there that I'm not perceiving and I need to work on those. 
know? And I will say that when you have those 12 beers in front of you, those little differences pop. Like you don't think, yeah. oh, it this doesn't taste like this. It does. They will, judges will pick it out every time. Well, and, and to that, I think it's a great point. And that goes back to that point. Like, is are you trying to win? Which if you're trying to win to be in the top tier, then those little things really matter because very few people actually win. But if you're, you know, maybe you're fine being like, well, you know what, if I make it to the third round, I'm very, very happy. That's all that, you know, great. We're a good beer. We're a really good beer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it is. The hardest part is passing the first round. And I think the way you pass the first round is to be a technically sound beer. Very if you're much. one of those few left on the table that's technically sound, you have a better chance of moving on. Because really in the first round, that's what we're trying to do. We're nitpicking, we're trying to eliminate beers and we're trying to get those three forward um, that have the best chance. Yeah, and I mean, and frankly, it's like, if you make the, if you're making a beer that's not technically sound, even if it's got great hop aroma, but you know, has diacetyl, or if it's great, you know, kind of drinkability, but has a ton of sulfur on the nose or something like that. I mean, those are the things that are going to be apparent to your customers too. They may not be able to use the same language to do it, to say it as a judge, but they're going to, it's going to reflect in their like kind of consumer response. Absolutely. Judging is really hard work. You and I both have been doing it for quite a while. After a day at the table, you're exhausted. And the last thing you want is another beer. What was your path to becoming a judge? And what advice do you give to brewers who are interested in becoming judges? Uh, I love judging. I, you know, I learn so much every time, whether it be a small competition, a neighborhood thing. Uh, I've judged the national homebrew competition um, in the past, like, you know, and of course, JBF and World Beer Cup other international ones. I mean, you always learn something from the people you're tasting. You only learn about your own palate too, right? Um, Advice-wise, I think that, I mean, I, I, I think that, I don't know that I, I think I get way more out of competition by judging than I do by entering. I would have to agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've done it for, and that you've said that, like you, you will not, you won't miss GABF. I remember one year you're like, they tried to rotate me out. And I was like, no. <laughs> I know I got yeah. on the alternate list. Yeah. And then you've done that in, twice. Right? Yeah. And now they're just like, whatever. Tanya's got like 16 seats. She's good. We're going to, she's in. Hopefully um, I can only cross my fingers, but judging small competitions has been a big help. And I think that that's one way if you have, um, have your sight set on JBF yep. or World Beer Cup because those are pretty long waits at this point. I was lucky because I kind of got ushered in in a time where there wasn't very many women. But the smaller competitions, you can get just as much from a table and you can learn kind of the ins and outs of judging and how to work on a table. And then also you can get those recommendations that you need from those people who are on those tables just as easily for for going on to the larger competitions like the World Beer Cups and the GABFs. Yeah, and I think that like you, there's this ability at those smaller in those smaller venues to learn about 
good beer, bad beer, about style that really, you know, in the absence of the ability to travel far or to get world-class, fresh versions of classic examples of styles, you can really learn a lot from the other people at the table too. You know, it's, a, it's a, the exposure level at those competitions is great to what's going on in the marketplace. Well, I think one thing that most people don't think about is that when you have those 12 beers in front of you, they are pretty much exactly how the brewer wants them to be. You can't go to the grocery store and pick out 12 scotch ales and think that they are going to have the same integrity or IPAs for that matter. I mean, you would never find 12 scotch ales. Um, And so for those kind of um, categories like scotch ale or doppelbach where you're just not going to find that variety in the grocery store but even ipas because the brewer has intended them to be at their peak at that moment and you just don't get that um that kind of conversation about these beers any other way because you're going to have oxidation you're going to have lots of different and age you're going to have lots of different things if you go to the grocery store and buy them you're just not going to be able to compare them any any better than what you do judging 100 percent. i mean and it's also like that's what yeah, look, to your point i mean when when do you get to have 12 scotch ales in front of you whenever do you get that are that are current in the marketplace as the brewer intended yeah and that is the style style guidelines be damned it's like you know you know how roasty a robust porter is have 12 of them in competition and then you're going to have a pretty good sense if they all taste too roasty to you I think you need to recalibrate what you think of as roast. You know, like that's the cool thing about getting to have these kind of blind panels. And that be, can be true, not just in, um, in professional competition, but in lots of other settings where you can pull beers together. But to your point, I think, yeah, when, when it's uh, systematically tied to a, a style of flight and like kind of a, a time period, you're not going to be, you know, going to the grocery store and getting one sample that's really fresh and one that's six months old. And they, they may not be kind of, it's not really the same apples to apples comparison, yeah, but yeah, it, 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 it gives you a, tr- it's, it's incredibly edifying. And one of the things that I think is hardest, like we have people who on our team who are great, great judges, I think, and great palates have good sensory training and where they lack oftentimes um, is kind of knowledge of world styles. And that's one thing that I think the BJCP does well compared to kind of like coming up through professional brewing and sensory programs and breweries, because at least at Breakside, and I think it, this is true at most breweries, but certainly at ours, like we don't spend a ton of time focusing on like training of world style on world styles that we don't make. We spend a lot of time talking about IPA. We spend a lot of time talking about lager. But like you know, if you're trying to learn about Scotch ale, use that as example again. Like that, we're not really the place where you're going to learn a ton about that. Um, so I think that's the trickiest piece of the puzzle in a lot of ways. Is you know, as you develop your palate, as you learn about technical brewing. It is to fill in that travel and world um, knowledge piece, but some of it just simply comes from doing small competitions and getting in there and kind of seeing what's in the market and judging categories, hoping to draw categories you might not normally get. Absolutely. So somewhat reluctantly, I started judging in 2008. I was told it would make me a better brewer and it absolutely has. In the past few years, I've become a somewhat selfish judge My main goal is to walk away inspired in some way. It may be a flavor combination, a new ingredient, or a potential category to target. I once judged a fruited wheat table at World Beer Cup, then went on to meddle in that category at GABF, along with another judge who was sitting at that very table. 
What takeaways from the table have benefited you in your ever-increasing metal collection? Uh, I think you're right that like when we when you judge like a category, you kind of get what works there, and we've got a pretty deep archive of beers. You know, like when I when I sit down to a table, I'll give you an example of this. Like I judged chili beer at GABF this year. I actually got to do first, second, and third rounds of chili beer. So the preliminary round a semifinal round and the medal round, all of different beers with different numbers, of course, the way this competition structured. We've made chili beers a lot over the years. And so in my mind, we already have like five or six chili beers, none of which are entered, but they're ones that we make. And while I'm not using any of those as my, I don't, would never be so kind of um, narcissistic as to think that like any of those beers is, would win in that category. I'm like, okay, how do the beers that we're tasting compare to our beers? Like it's a, it is selfish in that sense where you're like, what do I already have and how would that stack up? Um, and maybe that's where I come from on it. It's not quite the same as like, oh, fruit wheat beer. I feel like I could make something as good as this. I sort of say, oh, we already make a wheat porter with guajillo chilies. How would that have done here? And what can I take away from this to improve that beer? And then maybe a year later we do enter it because I'm like, okay, I could see this working, you know? And that's learning and strategic, you know, and, and hopefully reflects like improvement in the beer too. Um, so for me, it's often referential in that way. Like I'm always kind of thinking about like, what am I judging? What do we make in that vein? Do we make anything in this vein? What is it like? Where, what can I take back to that beer from this learning? And like, I got to do an awesome round of Pilsner at GABF this year and there's things that I want to try and bring back to what that like we I saw in those top beers to our Pilsner. I learned a ton from judging chili beers, like about heat level, about perception of chili, about the way that different judges who have different heat tolerances think about those beers. Again, that reflects in what a consumer is going to think too. And to me, that's uh, a cool way to kind of like bring just improve the beer that we're already making. And you know, whether that ends up going back into competition, 75, 25, probably, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, like you said, you're gonna loop that information back and make some of your older beers better. Always. So you are one of the organizers of my very favorite competition, the Oregon Beer Awards. Will you, talk a, will you talk a little bit about what it feels like on the other side of judging? And what makes this competition completely different than any of the others? Well, so the Oregon, the Oregon Beer Awards, the OBAs are kind of like our statewide competition. It's only Oregon beers, get like 1,200 entries every year from, you know, uh, 100 to 150 breweries around the state. Um, and yeah, we run it basically like a mini GABF, but the categories are much more kind of heterogeneous and more consolidated so that we keep the level of competition up. Um, and the committee of people who are kind of advising on styles and judging standards is a mix of brewers from around the state. I think there's like 12 or 13 people who now sit on that committee. And uh, it's always a really, uh, you know, robust discussion around styles and what we'll do each year. But the, the fun part of this competition is because it's smaller than some of the really big ones, we have a lot of JBF and World Beer Cup judges who are at um, OBA and who see, you know, who know 
all the, the, the successes and the struggles of competition, you know? And so like, we know I, I would be, I won't ever say that anything is any competition is perfect in that sense. Right. But like, so like, what are the things that we can look at these big competitions and do better because we're small and more nimble. It's like one thing is to record the judging conversation so that you as a participant can listen to what the judges actually said, not just get a sheet afterwards that kind of makes you guess, you know, try and read between the lines, leave that, you know, like you said, the Easter egg that you try and leave people on their feedback sheet, you know, they can actually hear like, oh, my beer was the first one off the table, my beer was fourth off the table. The other thing um, is that like, you know, we've done, been able to do things where like we run the competition in duplicate. All the first rounds get run twice to see if the judges on one table are agreeing with what the same, uh, another set of judges would say about the same set of beers. And the data that comes out of that's incredibly useful both to us as organizers. I think it adds integrity and kind of plausibility or kind of gravitas to the competition, but also gives brewers a little bit more kind of um, understanding where their beers are falling. It's like, hey, you know, both these tables tasted the same beer, the same set of beers. And in both instances, your beer was knocked out. They may be knocked out for different reasons, but again, it's like you had two chances and judges said no, different judges versus like, oh no, you had two judges, sets of judges and they both said yes. And it really gives you kind of a, a to use a, a baseball analogy, like it's kind of your slugging average in those, um, you know, it's not just like I eke through and get a, get a base hit. It's like, oh no, this is like a home run beer. And I think that's a really unique thing that very few, if any other places are doing. I think, um, how did, well, how did you come to the conclusion that you were, it's so much work to do a competition in the first place and you're basically doing it twice. How did you decide to do this? What, what made you, I know it was certainly many conversations with different brewers. Um, and then what have you found from that data? What's some of the hard statistics you found? Yeah. I mean, you, the conversations with, our peers in the industry, you know, across Oregon have been so valuable because I think we have a clear-eyed view about, again, the kind of um, the the positive attributes and the shortcomings of kind of blind tasting in that scenario. And when you put 75, 80 judges in a room together and you know some of those people are really, you know, in the kind of top tier of their profession, and you can have those conversations as team, whether it be one-on-one -on -one like you and me, or you know, in small groups, you just hear, you know, people come up with cool ideas in that. Um, and it's a little bit more personal and, you know, cause it's your home territory. And we can, and again, smaller companies, we adapt to those ideas. Um, but how do we come up with that it specifically? I don't remember. I think we just thought we would try and be interesting and be fun. And people have been really intrigued by it. Uh, the data is, you know, I'm always a little bit hesitant because we've only really done it twice. Um, with, so it's hard to say if it's repli replicable. Um, we'll do it again this coming weekend with the Oregon Beer Awards French Hop competition. And then again, next March um, with the competition for the state. And maybe after that, if the numbers bear out similarly, we'll um, put something together to, to kind of share. I know that uh, talk with folks, the BA and some other states who are very interested to hear if we have similar results again, but yeah, last year's numbers, I mean, effectively, you know, judges get it right, like 91, 92% of the time. And then there's 8% of noise. And that noise 
might mean that one day you would get a medal and the next day you get knocked out first round for the exact same beer against the other same beers. Um, so trying to make a slightly more perfect competition, though it's still imperfect, um, to eliminate that noise or reduce that noise is kind of the goal. But the takeaway is that actually the system is pretty good and could probably be a little bit better. So you talked a little bit about how you combine categories. So just to give people kind of a, for instance, you have coffee beers against smoked beers. Yeah. Like beers are grouped together that would never be judged against each other. It is incredibly hard to win a medal at this competition. What do you think it means to an Oregon brewer that wins? I mean, for small breweries in the state in particular, I think there's a huge kind of media um, interest surrounding them. You know, in some ways you win something at OBA if you're a small brewery in Oregon, it means more than if you say a bronze in a random category at GABF. Um, and I, you know, there's a few breweries who don't participate in the big national competitions who only do OBA because it's more affordable and because it has more salience to their consumer. Um, and people who look at the results recognize the names of all the other breweries and say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, this brewery does, should be winning that medal. That makes, that's awesome. Like they really outcompeted these other folks or like, you know, things like that, that is, um, it just, it, 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 it's, I think it kind of depends on what your platform and who you're trying to appeal, who your customer base is. And in that sense, like, I think it can be really, really powerful for some small breweries. I mean, you and I have seen some breweries grow to a lot of kind of gain a lot of cachet and notoriety in the state because of their successes at OBA, even though they haven't had that at larger national competitions or anything like that. Um, I look at, or I've definitely had discussions with some brewers who are out of state and they come in to judge. And I think they're very shocked and surprised at the caliber of beer that we're making in Oregon. And I think specifically in lagers, because yeah. I, we were ahead of the curve and we've been working on them for a while. Yeah, Oregon. So, you know, I, I, I think I don't, it's hard. We're biased, right? Like, I don't know what the reputation of Oregon beer is outside of the Northwest. I wish I knew, understood it better, but I think that like lager beer and mixed fermentation beer are two areas where the Northwest does not get a lot of attention. Oregon doesn't get a lot of attention, but there's like a, a very deep bench of very good brewers. Um, some of whom are specialists and some of whom are more generalists who just simply know how to do those beers really well. You know, I think that like I could rattle off five or seven great mixed firm breweries in the Northwest and, you know, they don't necessarily get a lot of hype outside of this region, but within it, you know, the beers stand up really well, really, really well to scrutiny. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I've been a little jealous of are these states that have, um, like, they get a lot of press, people write about them, and it's like, I go and taste these beers, and I'm like, you know, our beer is just as good, and you just don't hear that hype, and it's a little discouraging sometimes when I know the state is making really beautiful beer, but doesn't really get the exposure that other states do. Yeah, I mean, like, but like for us, for example, we sell 90% of our beer in Oregon and Washington. You know, I, I appreciate it when people in Colorado can be like, oh, you guys make great hoppy beer. I had your barrel aged stout and it's awesome. Like, but it's just like, it's a drop in the bucket, you know, like 
we don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's the hype question and the kind of reputational question is so, is so interesting to me. Um, but I do think that we as Northwest brewers maybe handicap ourselves slightly by selling a lot of beer to a small audience. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I can see that. I will, what's the, the, like the population of California is like 10 X that of, of, uh, Oregon. Right. That's a lot more people to hype you up. No doubt. So I know we're gonna, we're kind of running a little long on time. So I'm going to fast forward to this last question. Um, Ashley also asked this of me, and I think it's a really important question. Um, there have been several times you have per personally witnessed other brewers either dismissing me or not acknowledging me at all. What does diversity and inclusion look like at Breakside and how would you like it to look in the industry? It is an incredibly important question. I mean, thinking about what you said earlier about why you first started entering competition about the ideas like, well, if no one knows it's made by a woman, maybe that won't play into how they perceive the beer. And, you know, like we, um, I think that it comes from both this, it's an interesting like double side race. Like you want what you're talking about there, in my opinion, with like, it's completely blind in some ways where like you can be, you're measure you are you are esteemed entirely on the quality of what you do and there's no preconceived notion about what you can or can't do on the other hand is like diversity the whole the whole to me like a lot of the emphasis on dei is to talk about dei right to so talk about diversity to put it out there and to try and remind people that it's important you know um and for us, it's like a, it's like it's an ongoing project to balance those two prerogatives, like performance and the need to be more diverse. And as a like, as a person whose form of minority is not obvious to most people, as a straight acting gay man, like the I can pass very easily in this industry. And I don't have to, if I don't want to engage, if I can, I can go on merit, you know, quote unquote, without any of those preconceived notions. But at the same time, for myself, my staff, and our entire kind of ethos here, it's really important to acknowledge our forms of privilege and our forms of underprivilege and learn how to I don't know, share that with our customers in ways that makes people be more connected to the beer. Does that, I mean, is that, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And so looking at the industry as a whole, what would you like to see from the industry? I would like to see, well, first I would like to see an end to toxicity, right? I mean, I think that's number one. Again, it's like a pretty low baseline. It's like kind of a standard, it's not really a goal. Should be a base, it should be a given, but unfortunately it's not, right? Right. And, and that is the perfect place to start. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, can we it's hard, it's hard to talk about goals when you're not even able to get through the like really basics, basic shit. Um, 
I think that there is always a value to putting more diverse voices in front of more people, right? And things like being able to put uh, panels and experts out in front of people who do not look like them all the time, like things where you see that there are people that do not just look like you, who not just think like you, that are going to excel in this field is really, really important. And a lot of that is just intentional representation. It's finding those advocates, those people who can be kind of the representatives. Um, and until that's normalized, until we have panels at CBC or World Beer, or sorry, at the judge table, at educational situations where it's not just disproportionately white, straight white men, we're not there. You know, it should reflect society as a whole. Exactly. Well, Ben, thank you so much. I love you. Thank you for doing this. Love you too. Um, thank you. Ben will be back on the next episode of this show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That will be on air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. To support journalism in the beer space, check out Patreon slash allaboutbeer. I'm Tanya Cornett of Tembarrel Brewing. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsdtea.com dot com.